Well, I've already mentioned that this has been a busy week for us as a staff. We attended this conference for a couple of days, which meant basically that we had to get five days of work done in three days. And uh, I, my goal fully at the beginning of the week was to finish the sermon on Wednesday. And I did get quite a bit done, but not everything. And so that left me with two options. I could either... Um, you know, come in Friday night or finish it on Saturday. That's what I ended up doing was coming in on Friday night. And I, we ate dinner, I came in, and I worked on it for about three and a half hours. It was about 10.30 at night. And I was just editing through a few typos and tightening things up just a little bit when all of a sudden my computer spontaneously restarted. Now, I've got to admit, I did not save things. Um, I uh, usually rely on autosave. Um, and if Usually when things happen, you can get a document that's at least you know, no more than five minutes um, away from what you were doing when, when it crashed. But I, I spent about an hour till 11.30 at night trying to recover this document. And, um, and I finally realized, Google every possible solution. Uh, even Saturday, talked to a tech to find out if there was anything I could have done. Um, and basically, everything was gone forever. So again, it's 11.30 at night, and I'm not a night person. Um, I start declining in productivity after 10 o'clock. After midnight, I'm really not very good. And so uh, while I had really been looking forward to a complete day off, Saturday off, um, I realized that that meant that I was probably going to have to spend at least part of Saturday working on it, except that I began to spin in my mind with some possibilities. So I thought, maybe I could just wing it. So I've got a friend who is a pastor, and one time he just basically ran out the clock in a week and didn't get his sermon done. It's Sunday morning. So he just decided to bring his notes, all these handwritten notes and things that he'd collected, Xerox copies of things, into um, the, the service and just see if he could kind of just get by. And uh, it didn't go very well. And I thought, you know, I'm even worse at winging it, so um, that's probably not a good idea. And then I thought, well, maybe I could just find a sermon on the internet. You know, and especially if it's a really famous pastor, it might be a sermon that's a lot better than the one I wrote that now no longer exists. But, and I even thought about you know, the chances of any of you figuring out whether or not um, that was what I'd done, you know, maybe slim. But then I thought about trying to pass off someone else's sermon as my own. And so then I thought, well, maybe I've done something like this in the past. And the topic I have done some things on, but I haven't talked on James chapter 1, the text that we're looking at today. And so that was out. Then I thought, well, maybe I could fake like I'm sick. Um, <laughs> some of you may know, a couple years ago, on a Friday, I got the flu. And I was trying to write the sermon. And as the morning went on, it got, I got sicker and sicker. So I called Amy Rowland. I said, Amy, you're going to have to take this one. And so she had to start with the little bit of notes that I had. And she did a great job. Um, but... I got to thinking, well, you know, I could, tomorrow morning I could call Amy or I could call Devin or I could call Fish or Kara and have them fill in for me. And, uh, but I'm not sick. And basically I'd be asking one of us to spend Saturday working on a sermon. So I thought, well, it'd probably better be me. But I did think of one other option. Actually, this one, I, I, I don't want to say whether or not I did this, but you know, there's the, the salty language option. Um, rip into Microsoft, um, cut few with a few expletives, I was alone. No one was there. Who'd have known? <laughs> but in the end, I decided to go back to where I'd started, that even though it stunk and it kind of ruined my afternoon, I needed to say no to temptation to cut corners, and I needed to sit down in front of my laptop, which I did, and write the sermon again. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at a, a letter that was written by one of the leaders of the early Christian church. His name is James. Uh, he was the brother of Jesus, and he wrote a letter crammed with practical advice about all sorts of topics, 
And it was a letter that was passed around to the churches, the Christian churches throughout uh, the empire. And as we mentioned last week, James isn't always warm and fuzzy. He's very, very practical, but sometimes he can be surprisingly confrontational. And this week he takes on a tough tempt- uh, topic, and that's temptation. And he says some things that sound harsh to our ears. In fact, he doesn't give us much wiggle room when it comes to whether or not we've lived up to what God expects of us. So I want to read what he has to say and then uh, look at it a little bit more carefully. So what we're going to look at is in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Um, and uh, if you want to, you, the Pew Bible there, on, I think it's on page 1840, uh, but the words will also be on the screen. So again, James chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James starts here in an interesting place. Um, Really, what he's saying here is don't blame God when you're tempted. In one way, what he's telling us is uh, something about God. He's giving us a theology lesson that God doesn't tempt us to sin. Now, one of the reasons why he mentions this is something that's not entirely clear to us. We have different words for test, temptation, and trial, but in Greek, that word is the same word. You have to discern from the context whether he's talking about a trial, which James talks about. In fact, Devin talked about a few weeks ago, or a test, um, or a temptation. And in this case, the implication is he's talking about something that's a temptation. And that ambiguity led some people to think at times that while God may test us, while God may permit a trial to be in our lives, James wants to make them clear, make it clear that God does not tempt. He may test our faithfulness in order to strengthen our faith. He may allow a trial to come our way, but he will never tempt us in order to see us fail. Satan would like to see us fail, um, but God wants us to succeed. Now, I don't think the main reason he mentioned this is because he wanted to give a theology lesson. I think he wanted to make a very practical point, and that is that as human beings, we have a natural tendency to try to blame others. What we do whenever we face something and begin to fail, we want to find someone else to blame. So maybe you remember the story back in Genesis chapter 3 when humankind sinned for the first time. And when it happened and God confronted Adam and Eve, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed a snake, and in a sense, they were just trying to find someone to blame. And so we blame people. Sometimes we even blame God. And James refuses to let them off the hook. He says, don't try to find someone else to blame. Accept responsibility. Remember, you are responsible for the decisions you make. You're responsible for your actions. And it's easy to try to blame someone else when we fail. We love playing the victim. We'll blame our parents, our schools, government, our boss, um, whatever it is. What's harder and more necessary is for us to take responsibility. Now, he's making it clear that we are responsible for our actions, that instead of finding excuses like I'm an alcoholic or my parents didn't love me or I'm lonely or my boss is awful, that we have to take responsibility to deal with the temptations that come our way. Now, just a note here, because I don't want to sound insensitive. I know that some of you have things in your past or in your current circumstances that make resisting temptation more difficult. We're going to talk a little bit later about ways that we can find help, and some of that help comes from others. But I want to understand that even if there are unique circumstances in your life, that you still need to take responsibility. Failure to accept responsibility is the first step towards sin. 
Now, James is not saying, by the way, that temptation itself is sin. We need to learn how we can deal appropriately with it um, or we'll have some problems. That leads to step two in this process, and that is desire. He says temptation comes from desires which entice us and drag us away. A couple of things to point out here. First of all, the word desire is not entirely a negative word. In fact, in some ways it's neutral because desire only describes desire for something, and something could be good or it could be bad. In other words, many of the times that we have desires, it's desires for very good things. And we ought to fuel those desires. We ought to feed those desires. But if it's something that's negative, we need to squelch it. If desire is for a good thing, we can feed it. If desire is for something negative, we need to stop it. We can either feed it or let it control us, or we can stop it. Now, it doesn't take too much imagination to, uh, to imagine a desire, a difficult or bad desire, how it can take control of our thoughts and lead us down certain tracks, how our eyes will linger, or our hearts will think about something that we ought not too long. Desire itself is not sin, but when we encourage desire for something bad enough, the consequence is if, that it will eventually become an action. Now, one of the things that's not transparent to us, but would have been to uh, James' early readers, is he's really alluding to an analogy here. And the analogy is a, a fish swimming in water toward a baited hook. And what he's doing is saying that the bait is temptation, and if the fish turns away, nothing happens. But if desire takes hold and the fish goes for the bait, it will get the hook as well. Now, by the way, the analogy breaks down. Analogies usually are only designed to tell us one truth. So the one part of this analogy that isn't true, because James has already said it, is that God is not there to try to deceive us. He isn't going to put things out there that look good in order to make us grab the hook. But his point is, is that we have a choice, whether we're going to turn towards something or turn and swim away. There's nothing we can do to prevent desire from coming our way, but desire, or temptation from coming our way. But desire is something different. It comes from inside of us. And we have a choice, either to turn toward it or to turn away from it. And when we do, when we turn toward it, James calls what happens sin. That is that the desire is then acted on. So the third step in this process that James described is when our desires make us sin. In most translations, it says that desire gives birth to sin. That's important because it tells us how sin becomes a part of our lives. You know, often we talk about falling into sin. So it's the idea of walking down the street, just not having to look where you go, and there's a manhole uh, cover that's been taken off, and you fall into a hole without even knowing it. Or it's late at night, and you're walking along a path in some wilderness area, and you don't see a cliff. You fall off the cliff and fall into the canyon. That's the way most of us think about the way sin happens in our lives. But that's not what James is saying. He's saying that desire leads to sin in the same way that pregnancy leads to a baby. That means that the path toward sin is a process, not an event. It means that we don't fall into sin, we slide into sin. Now, I've talked before to people who've had an affair, and some will admit, a few will admit that they were looking for trouble. But most tell me that it started harmlessly. It may have been a coworker, and they were on a project working long hours and you know, started to get closer to someone, and that led to, one thing led to another. And while it wasn't their intention from the beginning, that long slide towards sin took place. In fact, I've heard people tell me there were several points along the way when I could have stopped it, but I didn't. With clinical precision, James describes this process that starts with temptation, leads to desire, 
leads to sin, and then it has a consequence. When sin's allowed to grow, it leads to death. Now, when James talks about death, he's talking about it in two senses. First, he's being literal. Sin can kill our bodies. If we mistreat our bodies, fail to take care of them, it may not do a lot of harm to us in the short term, but over time, it can do great harm. Eventually, things can catch up. But sin can also kill the relationships. Again, it's like a pregnancy. It may take time, but if we neglect a relationship long enough, it can eventually die. Similarly, if we uh, fail to do a good job at work, we may have done a good job in the past, but maybe we've just decided to neglect what we're doing. Over time, it will hurt us. Maybe not for months, maybe not for years, but eventually things catch up. So sin can kill our bodies. It can kill relationships. In short, it can wreak havoc in our lives. But there's another sense in which James is talking about death, and this is a spiritual death. Sin can kill our relationship with God. St. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, 23, he said, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the trajectory of our lives, if we live in sin, will be spiritual death. Now, that's the bad news, but James doesn't, or Jesus, uh, Paul, get the right person here, doesn't stop there. He immediately leads to some very good news when he says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what he's saying is, you know, spiritual death is inevitable for those of us who have sinned, which really is all of us. But God has made a way so that we can be reconciled to God through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, a couple things to note here. First of all, while God is against sin, he's not against us. God's against sin, but he's not against us. And he's not putting up restrictions on our behavior for arbitrary reasons. He's not trying to limit our happiness. God is really like a parent who is trying to warn a child of dangers that they may not see. He's guiding away, us away from the consequences of poor decisions that may affect us down the road. That's why he's so careful to tell us how temptation leads to desire, which leads to sin, which leads to death. Now, he knows how destructive sin can be in our lives. Every year I share a quote. It's uh, one of the most powerful ideas that I've ever come across, and it was written by Dante, the Italian poet who wrote the Divine Comedy. And Dante says the punishment for sin is the sin itself without illusion. The punishment for sin is the sin itself without illusion. What he's saying here is that we often are attracted to sin, and it looks pleasurable. Sometimes it is for a season, even if it may have destructive consequences. And then he says the point is, is that the punishment comes through the consequences, through the experience of sin itself. Again, it may take time. It may even seem pleasant for a season, but in the end it isn't. With that, James gives us uh, an overview of how sin takes root in our lives. And with the time remaining, what I want to do is to talk about some practical ways for us to avoid that long slide that often happens towards sin. And the first suggestion I'd have is that we be prepared. We just need to understand that as long as we live on earth, we will find that we are faced with temptations. That's just inevitable. At some point, we need to realize that life, at least on some level, is a battle. Each of us have our own unique struggles. It might be alcohol or lust or anger or greed or selfishness or bitterness. It could be a whole variety of things. You probably know the one or two things that you struggle with the most. You know where you're weak, so be ready. A second suggestion is to run from sin. Many of the texts in the New Testament that talk about avoiding sin use a, a Greek word that means flee and actually literally means to run away from. 
Not walk, but run. Not stand beside, but to turn away and to go in the opposite direction. And let me give you an example in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2.22. Uh, this letter of Timothy is written to a young friend of Paul's, and he wrote, flee the evil desires of youth. What he's saying here is turn, run away from. Don't stand beside, don't look over the edge. He's saying run away from the desires of youth. A third suggestion is to pursue God. And this really builds on what Paul just told his young friend Timothy because he says flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Another way to state this is something that James says positively in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. When we resist, when we pursue God, we can find strength. And let me just give you one more example from the New Testament, again from St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, where he says, no temptation has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In some ways, we have a preconception. Um, our preconception with avoiding sin is misdirected. Instead of focusing on building a strong relationship with God, instead we need to focus on building a strong relationship with God. It's a mistake to think that resisting temptation is all about just saying no. Instead, it's about saying yes to Jesus, to focus our attention on God rather than on avoiding sin. Kathy and I had a neighbor who lived a block and a half or two blocks away from us when we uh, were living in our house in our old neighborhood. And he had a terrible lawn. Um, the backyard was largely bare, little bits of grass here and there. The front yard was just full of weeds. And every year he'd go to the hardware store and he would ask them for whatever chemical he could find that would kill the weeds. And his lawn never got better. Now, our friend had a, a, another friend um, who had worked for the Department of Agriculture um, in Washington, D.C., had retired, had moved back to the Twin Cities. And so one time my friend complained, um, our neighbor complained to this guy about his lawn and said, you know, what in the world do I do? Well, this expert said to him, you know, you're going about it in completely the wrong way. You're worried about fighting weeds when you really need to worry about growing grass, he said the grass, if it grows well, will choke out the weeds. And so he did. And with a couple of years, he had a pretty decent-looking lawn. Now, the best way that I know how to pursue God is to begin to spend time each day with him. I, I probably sound like a broken record here, but I recommend regularly that you begin to build a discipline, a habit, a spiritual habit in your lives of spending time with God. Don't think you have to do, you know, like an hour or something. I think 10 to 15 minutes a day is a great place to start. And spend a few minutes reading something from the Bible and then spending time praying. Now, when you read the Bible, what happens is you begin to fill your mind with wisdom that comes from God. You begin to build an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And it opens you up to guidance from the Holy Spirit. And then the opportunity to pray is an opportunity to tell God the things that are challenging in your lives, to bring him the things that you're struggling with and ask for help. There is no habit I know that's more important in developing and growing um, a relationship with God than spending time with him each night or each day. The night before Jesus died, he was with his disciples. They'd had a meal. They went then from there to a garden to pray. Um, it was a garden outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus knew the trials. He knew the challenges that lay ahead. And so he went there and he spent some time praying by himself. In fact, while he was there, he not only prayed for himself, but he prayed for his disciples as well. 
And then he went back, he interrupted his own prayer time and went back to his disciples and he gave them some advice. He said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what is it that you find most tempting? The thing that runs through your mind that could most easily turn into sin. The thing that's most likely to hook you this week. Take Jesus' advice. Watch and pray. Some of you know the name John Newton. He's the author of the words of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, he's an 18th century, excuse me, 19th century preacher. And he was a prominent pastor in London. Um, he was known for being extremely wise. And so people in his parish went to him often to find out what he had to suggest for their lives. But it wasn't just contained to his church community. He, he carried on throughout his lifetime a correspondence with a number of people. And after he died, some of these folks who valued the letters they'd received from John Newton um, gathered them together and they put them in a book, which I've read. One of the, those who wrote him was a young pastor who uh, was as yet unmarried and wanted to desperately to be married. Newton encouraged him to trust God that he would provide him with a wife. And this young man was honest and transparent enough with Newton to share his own struggle with lust. And Newton wrote back to him with some wise advice. He said this, When such thoughts rise in your mind, for you have no door to shut them quite out, run with them to the throne of grace and commit them to the Lord. Satan will perhaps try to force them on you unseasonably and inordinately. But if he sees that they drive you to prayer, he'll probably desist rather than being the occasion of doing you so much good. Now, this is old English. It's not something we're familiar with. But what he's saying here is that when we're faced with temptation, when these things come our way, and we can't, and he's right, we can't shut them out. He says, go immediately to God in prayer. Satan may continue to try to force you to think about these temptations. But if he sees eventually that they are making you go to God in prayer, Maybe he'll stop because he realizes he's doing you more good than he is harm. James is very clear about the process, that temptation leads to desire, that desire leads to sin, that sin leads to death. Many today view sin as fun. We have this, even, we even joke about it. We say that anything fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. But that's not the way the writers of the Bible thought about it. They understood that sin can be pleasurable for a time but it doesn't last and frequently has destructive consequences. In fact, the very thing that we think will bring us pleasure often brings us sorrow and pain. I'm convinced both from my own experience and also from the trust that I have in the Bible that our true joy and our true pleasure comes only from God. I believe that in a relationship with God, we find the life that he has laid out for us, that we will find true joy, abiding peace, deep satisfaction, and the abundant life that God has for us. So what stands before our current lives and what God has for us? Well, it's really a decision to trust Jesus, to follow the way of life that he's laid out for us. So why aren't we more like Christ? Why aren't we more living more the way that God asks us to live? Why do we struggle so much with sin? Well, I'm going to go back to someone uh, who wrote even earlier than John Newton, someone from the uh, 17th century, another pastor named William Law. Again, the language is a little dated, but let me just read what he has to say. He says, if you stop and ask yourselves why you're not as good as the, he calls them primitive Christians, he means the Christians who've lived before you were, 
Your own heart will tell you that it is neither through ignorance nor inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. Again, he says, if you ask yourselves why you're not as good as you ought to be, your own heart will tell you that it's neither because you don't know better or because you're unable, but because you don't thoroughly intend to be that way. So let's stop acting like victims. Let's stop blaming each other. Let's turn away from temptation. Let's not let our desires control us. Instead, let's do the humble work of confessing sin. Let's ask God to help us turn away from sin and pursue God. Now, it's not gonna happen overnight, but if we choose to follow him, we will find freedom. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for James' words, challenging words, words of wisdom, but words that make us think deeply and hard and honestly about our lives. Father, we can't prevent the temptations that this world offers um, from coming into our minds, from coming into our vision. But Father, we have choices after that, and I pray that we would honestly accept responsibility. Father, that we would turn away from the desires that are bad toward the desires that are good, that we would not let these things give birth to sin in our lives. We would not experience death, but that we would trust you, that we would choose to follow you, and that we would find strength and comfort and peace that comes from you, and that that would be more powerful in our lives than the momentary pleasures of sin. Father, we trust you, knowing that your son, Jesus Christ, has given us life, life and freedom from sin, from the death that sin wrecks in our lives. We also thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us the wisdom and insight and power to avoid sin in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.